0: This forum is part of the City Club's Changing Climate series, sponsored by Cleveland Foundation and the George Gunn Foundation. We're grateful for their generous support.
1: Hello, everyone. I am Justin Glanville. Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I am a reporter and producer with Ideastream. It's May 6th and you are with a virtual City Club Forum. (laughs) Hopefully you could hear that, that was the gong. Last month, President Joe Biden and his top officials announced that they are re-entering the Paris Agreement and making aggressive commitments to cut greenhouse gas emissions. As part of a two-day summit, President Biden announced the United States will target reducing emissions by 50% by 2030. Now, while most of the responsibility for combating the effects of climate change are being negotiated on the world stage, Many of the most actionable solutions are small and local. How we live and work together in communities and cities can have a big impact in tackling climate change, yet most of us are unaware of the tools at our disposal to help create meaningful change. There's still much work to be done to ensure that the solutions to climate change are available to lower income communities and communities of color, since they are disproportionately affected by climate change. Today we're joined by local leaders who will discuss the tools, projects, and initiatives underway to reduce carbon pollution while simultaneously creating more racial, economic, and environmental justice. Joining us today are Bishop Marcia Dinkins. She's the Executive Director of Ohioans for Sustainable Change, which was formerly known as Ohio Interfaith Power and Light. Bishop Dinkins is known nationally for her work organizing clergy on issues of healthcare, the social safety net, environmental and climate justice, racial, economic, and gender justice, and civic engagement. Cindy Mumford is the president of the Block Club, a residence group in the Huff neighborhood. She is working to bring the neighborhood a solar energy garden that would be 100% resident owned and would cut down on residents' utility bills while also allowing them to build wealth. Finally, we have John Sariak. He is the founder and CEO of Go Sustainable Energy. It's an energy efficiency and sustainable energy consulting firm based in Columbus. As in every City Club Forum, you can participate with your questions. Just simply text them to the following number, 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them to at the city club, that's at the city club, and we'll try to work them in. So with that, let's begin. All right, and I have the wrong um, thing up on my screen. Okay, but I remember my first question was, um, I would love to hear just from all of you, um, what brought you to this work in the first place? Um, why is it meaningfully? meaningful for you personally. Um, Bishop Marcia, Could I start with you?
2: Sure, Justin, and um, thank you for allowing me to be a part of this um, panel discussion, I'm, I'm honored. Um, it's more, yeah, it's, it's personal for me, and I'm in this work, um, one, because I feel it's a calling, but number two, because of my lived experience. Um, just to share a short story with you, I used to live in Toledo, Ohio, and where I lived at, uh, when it rained or when it, you know, stormed, uh, our basements would flood, and my basement flooded to a point where um, the water was up to my knees, and I had to put on boots, and and that kept happening. And then, as I looked at what would occur during the weather or the climate climate change, then you know the humidity from the basement would then. Um, create mold and different uh, mushrooms and whatnot that were growing in my basement. And I ended up going into anaphylactic shock five times and being hospitalized. Uh, And from that moment, it was like that aha moment that I had not paid attention to how climate and environment intersected in a more personal way um, and how it, it shows up in so many different spaces. And then I began to look at, you know, the other ways that it impacted our lives. And, and because of that, I began to see that the work that I was doing was not just uh, linear in nature, uh, but there was layers to it. And so from there, I really got um, interested in this work even deeper because I began to see the impact, the connections, and the stories that are connected to it in ways that we can involve more people, as well as be able to um, just exercise my faith in, in, a, in a more meaningful way in my voice.
1: Perfect. And I love speaking with you on the phone earlier this week about your your work with stories and i'm looking forward to getting into that more as we talk thank you bishop marcia um can i go to you next john what brought you to this work yes um gosh
3: (laughs) i think i i'm a natural engineer and um engineers like to problem solve um and i was just you know from a young age, personally interested in social and environmental issues, um, because they're, they're very visible uh, problems to just about everyone. And so I think that just kind of gnawed at me. <laughs> so, um, and um, a lot of engineering careers historically, I think have not been oriented towards um, social or environmental issues um, or problems. They were more geared towards product design um, but the, the engineering skill set can be applied to lots of different types of problems. So it was a it, it's been a very interesting line of work. Um, but I think it was a, a mixture of interest in and applying my engineering skill set, what interests me personally, but then also, you, you know, observation and noticing the 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 problems around around me and society in general, and wanting to be a part of um, fixing the problems.
1: Awesome, and I can't wait to hear about your journey because I know you started your company in 2006, which was really at the sort of the start of, I guess, wider climate and environmental consciousness around around green building strategies and so on. So I can't wait to hear more about your your professional journey. And then uh, Cindy, could I turn next to you? What brought you to the work of climate and environmental justice? Uh,
0: Well, thank you for inviting me to your panel. Um, I'm really honored. Um, I can just say that, um, it was very, very personal to me and to my, and to my neighbors as well. Um, I've lived in this community for, uh, gosh, uh, (laughs) almost since the early sixties. And in addition, um, it was really when we got together with our neighbors, Uh, We were able to the city, the city of Cleveland offered some grassroots um, meetings where the community could come together and talk about uh, social environmental issues. And then we were also able to come up with a plan for implementation. And during this plan, we've been at this since 2018. Um, We've noticed that social environmental um, issues also have a direct impact on our overall health and well-being. Um, As um, the bishop um, spoke earlier, we all too many times have a lot of issues in our community when it comes to asthma, uh, uh, COPD, high blood pressure, and other ailments that are played in the African-American community. But what makes our project great and what really, really, really um, galvanized the community as a whole is that we get a chance to own it. This is a project where we're able to position ourselves in this march, in this market. We're able to produce the solar garden to not only address our housing envelope, but also social and economic, economic issues and disparities. And um, that's what got me involved. And this is uh, my passion, but it's not just my passion. It's the collective passion of our community.
1: Fantastic. Yeah, I can't wait to get into some of the details of the solar garden too. That's such a cool project. Um, So John, I'd like to read a definition of climate justice that I found because I think, uh, it, for me at least, it wasn't a term that I was as familiar with as environmental justice. Um, but this definition comes from Mary Robinson. She's the former president of Ireland and she now runs a climate justice foundation. And she says that climate justice, quote, insists on a shift from a discourse on greenhouse, greenhouse gases and melting ice caps into a civil rights movement with the people and communities most vulnerable to climate impacts at its heart. And then from there, I'm paraphrasing now. She says, It's about creating opportunities, including economic opportunities and jobs within those communities. So I have a two-part question for you. What are some of the ways that your clients are becoming more energy efficient? And then how is that creating opportunities for the people who are most affected by climate change here in Ohio? Okay, so, um,
3: I mean, practically speaking, the what we see our clients doing, um, you know, kind of this technical answer to your question, uh, how how our clients are becoming more efficient. Um, the I think right now it's actually a, a mix of efficiency, but also um, on-site generation, which is pretty new the last couple of years. Um, but it's it's a it's allowed through uh, technological innovation. And I think just greater awareness of that um, organizations' utility bills are manageable. They used to be viewed as a fixed cost. Um, and so frankly, they were just never managed um, often by organizations and now they are. So um, organizations are finding a lot of savings opportunity, but it's things, things you might think of. It's, it's upgrading lights to LEDs. Um, it's controlling the heating and, and cooling systems better. Uh, a lot of it is in there, the controls. Um, it is things like uh, rooftop solar systems, um, so we're seeing a lot of that um, kind of across the board. Um, as far as like creating opportunities, um, I think the what's interesting about this discussion is I would say our clientele um, and where the opportunities are created have, have largely been where the opportunities were, if that makes sense. So I uh, I don't know that we have noticed a real concerted effort with Um, as the energy infrastructure changes from, you know, largely centralized plants and fossil fuel based generation to renewable energy and storage and energy management. um, I I don't know that we've seen those opportunities um, extended to other parties. You know, it's largely the same sorts of companies that were in the space before coming back. So we've had, uh, to be honest, we've been reflecting on that Um, And I think some of of the work we're doing in the Cleveland community with community solar and growth opportunities partners, um, I think brings that up and highlights that, that um, probably probably there needs to be some effort in leaning in to make these opportunities in this new market equitable and open to others. Um, It's kind of a candid answer, but uh, I guess, you know, the same players that have been in the space are the ones that are
1: um, participating
3: in the new economy.
1: No, I appreciate your candor. Thank you for that. And just as a follow up, I know, like, it sounds like, you know, much of your work and maybe even still now has been in improving efficiency in existing systems or like within our existing energy infrastructure, which is probably why the opportunities are going to existing players. So do you, do you see kind of like renewables and projects like the solar garden, which we'll talk about here in a second, do you see that as really being the doorway? to creating sort of opportunities in the non-traditional, um, among non-traditional players? Yeah, for
3: sure. I think that there's some attention around that and it can be a, a great vehicle. It's visible, um, it makes sense. Um, I think, you know, in underserved communities though, there, you find a lot of the traditional energy efficiency opportunities that have been technically achievable and economically, feasible for a long time still haven't been done, right? So we're talking something as simple as insulating a home um, or getting a smart thermostat into a home or upgrading the heating and air conditioning and not just homes, but also small businesses. Um, Small businesses have barely been touched from an energy efficiency perspective. They don't have access to expertise. Um, They don't have the internal staffing often to figure these things out. There's a landlord tenant issue. so I think where you know like the community solar where there's actually an advantage is it's it's visible and it's interesting um, uh it's it's harder to get a rallying cry around uh insulation I guess it doesn't maybe it doesn't have to be that way but yeah. that's what we've noticed but all the all these things could come into you know small business and residential communities that um, today you know they're they're technically and economically feasible so
1: Mm-hmm. And and maybe it, are the barriers just sort of maybe a lack of funding or a lack of um, knowledge or awareness about those opportunities being available?
3: Yeah, I think the there's a lot of barriers. Um, but I thought about this. And I, I wanted to say also, though, that like, there's a lot of complicated things, you know, community solar, for example. Um, I mean, I could list probably like, 20 barriers to why it's gonna be difficult to get started. Um, But I also want to say there's, I I think we need to also realize, um, instead of just saying it's complicated and hard, we also need to acknowledge, really it's kind of simple. (laughs) There's a simple truth to, I think people are saying like, hey, uh, why don't I buy or own a solar panel? How come I can't generate electricity for myself um, and use that and have that choice? Um, And I I think we need to hold on to that simple truth to help push us through um, a lot of the the economic and regulatory and political barriers. But there's an institutional inertia um, with the electric sector where, frankly, I I don't I mean, this is new. Uh, This is a new thing. Um, And uh, a distribution utility doesn't necessarily know how to integrate a community solar project. Um, and so there's not a clear entrance ramp for organizations or, or people who do want to do this sort of project. And that's the first barrier is it's like, there's just not even a way to connect uh, the folks who want to do these projects to the system. Um, but I think we need to, to acknowledge that it can be done. Uh, there's a simple truth to it. And that'll maybe help us get us through some of the barriers that do exist.
1: Great. Uh, Cindy, we've been kind of teasing the the solar garden project here for the last couple minutes, so I'd like to turn to you next. Um, You and the Block Club are working with John's company right now on a project called the Huff Community Solar Garden. It'll be an array of solar panels on about eight acres of vacant land in the neighborhood, and it's planned to generate about 300 kilowatts of energy and power 50 homes representing 100 people in the neighborhood. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you and the Block Club got the idea for that project and how you've been getting it off the ground?
0: Well, um, we actually got the idea from the project um, by doing our own research when it comes to renewable energies. And we were very interested in um, reducing our carbon footprint. And um, we are well aware of the barriers that... um, uh, that address projects such as the BC. We also know that there are different models in other states. There are 12 other states that have have done this sort of community-type solar ownership um, array, and they've been very successful. So with Cleveland, we are trying to, uh, let's just say, integrate ourselves through the Underground Railroad by working with um, stakeholders such as um, Mr. Syriac and Growth Opportunities Unlimited, um, Cleveland State. Um, we have also been involved with uh, a legal form to help us to adopt policy to introduce as legislation um, so that this work can become a reality. So we, and just a matter of fact, we have a meeting with the city today, right after this meeting, um, because the interest is so high and uh, working with the city of Cleveland sustainability department to make this project a reality. Um, so we have a vest, vested interest in making this project work and our interest in uh, solar because um, I don't even know if I can even share my screen but anyway, we just wanted to make sure that we position ourselves if um, there is a, um, the industry of solar, um, the projected outcome through 2026 is $52 billion, $52 billion. And then it's projected to reach $223 billion by 2026. And as John mentioned, these are all the existing big players that are, are at the table. So this is an avenue for us to create wealth within our community for generations. If we're able to um, create a pathway, not only for our solar project, but for other uh, communities that look like ours that want to change our um, economic footprint through this industry. so. If we're able to collaborate and we are doing a great job of collaborating now, um, this project will be a model, not only just for um, the Block Club in Huff, but all through greater uh, Northeastern Ohio, in addition to other surrounding states uh, in our area. Um, Like I said, it's always easy to identify the barriers but what we've done with our collaborations, if we've identified the barriers, we've come up with a strategy for implementation. Now the buy-in for this type of project is crucial to its success. Given that city, the city of Cleveland has Cleveland public power, and John, you can speak to more of those um, the um structure of cleveland public power it gives us an opportunity to introduce this legislation because it's ran by city council and john, john you can correct me so that means that it's it's not as regulated as the regular uh regulatory body that um the other uh, the illuminated company is with so if we're able to get off our um our power purchase agreement we already know that the stack, the cards are stacked against us. And this is why the players at the table, at the table, the existing pay- players, as John mentioned, um, this, is our, this is our last go around to position ourselves as a people to take advantage of this wealth and also benefit overall. And this will also help eradicate policy if it's done correctly, steer headed and led by the community. We have to have a seat at the table to implement change. We've done it before.
1: Thank you, Cindy. Yeah, thank you. Um, Bishop Marcia, could I turn to you next? Uh, You've spoken about how there's a moral imperative to address climate change. Can you talk about that a little bit? And then what are some of the ways that Ohioans for sustainable change is addressing that moral, moral imperative through its programs.
2: Well, when faith leaders, as faith leaders, uh, we have a moral imperative um, to to bring forth the truth, or or to educate those within, you know, the faith community. Um, also, to combat some of the false narratives that have been legislated, um, you know, based around belief and, and, and ideologies. and and values in a religious space. And we've seen this um, in 2016 and 2020 with our prior administration and the election. And and so, you know, we have a a responsibility, a mandate uh, that we need to begin to teach and train so that we can have, you know, transform communities. And one of the things that we're doing is we've launched the Black Church, the Green Movement. And the Black Church, the Green Movement, is really about educating faith leaders on climate change as well as environmental justice, um, so that they can be one, equipped to take the message into their communities; two, to be able to build green teams or social justice teams within within their congregations; um, to also, you know, have training on the inside and conversation, you know, on, on the inside with regards to. Uh, our responsibilities that, you know, I often tell people, you cannot say that you've accepted a call uh, to ministry, but you deny the call to justice. And and so uh, we're moving in in a space of acknowledging our call to justice and doing this at the intersection of our faith. And that's where the moral imperative comes in. Um, and we have done in the past, um, be the spark trainings, uh, Ohio, formerly, when, it, when they were Ohio IPL, they did a lot of, you um, work around um, energy efficiency. and They had an energy stewardship program as well as the faithful footprints and what that did was it allowed houses of worship to have energy audits and do energy assessments to become energy efficient. And we were able to um, probably bring over 100 uh, houses of worship into that space and they continue to be faithful energy stewards. Uh, and continue to move towards energy efficiency within their um, congregations. And Faithful Footprints is about uh, the congregants, you know, members of the church who also um, say, hey, you know, I want my home to be energy efficient. I wanna be able um, to protect against, um, you know, some of the things attached to climate change or environmental justice and we have um, also you know trained them and gotten them the things that they needed in order to have um, energy efficient and safe homes and so those are just you know different ways that we carry that moral imperative as well as just lifting our voices uh, to speak against unjust policies or degenerative policy making which continues to leave some out um, as we call it, or I like how Thomas Sowell puts it, the vision of the anointed versus the benighted. Uh, We're showing up as thinkers and leaders in this space uh, to challenge the vision of the anointed, which is the political thinkers who believe that. uh, They don't need empirical data. They don't need anything but just their thoughts. And as a result of that, we see uh, the place that we're in with regards to climate change and climate denial and uh, environmental injustices that continue to be perpetuated. And Bishop Marcy, speaking
1: with you for a moment, you also are involved with an initiative called Reimagine Appalachia, and mm-hmm. its aim is to bring climate justice and new jobs to four states, Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky. Um, and my ears perked up when you talked about one of the projects that you're working on with that initiative being a story map where you'll be posting, I believe on, online a map with associated stories of people living in those states and how uh, climate change affects them, I think. But can you talk a little bit more about that? And then maybe also just a bit more about Reimagine Appalachia.
2: Sure, um, so Reimagine Appalachia, as you stated, um, is a four state uh, campaign, uh, Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Kentucky. And and the whole purpose for Reimagine Appalachia was to uh, Connect to the federal, you know, to connect to federal policies and to push for federal infrastructure or public investment into the Appalachian regions, and so a lot of this is connected to bringing um, union jobs uh, into those four into those four regions. Um, and so what what I have done and what you're speaking about is inside of the, the, the blueprint, you know, a lot of times we can develop things and they're not always racially inclusive. And we realize that in, in reimagine Appalachia. Um, and so as a part of that, uh, I started building out the Black Appalachian Coalition. And the Black Appalachian Coalition is is uh, addressing several issues. First of all, when we think of the word uh, rule or Appalachia, we always consider it to be like this this nostalgic place rooted in whiteness uh, that's exempt from uh, the the problems that America experiences with regards to race. And so, the purpose of the Black Appalachian Coalition is to confront black invisibility, uh, and you know because they have been black people have been erased and excluded from the story of Appalachia. And so, through story based strategies. Our goal is to bring forth their word, or as I like to say, decolonize the knowledge that's attached to history, photography, and and stories, and we're going to uh, decolonize the knowledge through contrast mapping, Uh, story-based mapping and other story-based strategies not only want to bring to the forefront the rich history that Black people have played in Appalachia, but if we're going to talk about economic justice, which will then lead us to racial justice, we have to make sure that those voices are at the table, those voices are seen, voices are heard, as well as those individuals are seen. Otherwise, we'll continue to build the trenches that go around them, uh, that continues to perpetuate the racial wealth gap. And our goal is to make sure through those stories that not only are we building the trenches to where uh, there's jobs and economic and entrepreneurialship opportunities, but also to look at the things that has been perpetuated as a legacy legacy of slavery um, around environmental um, divestment, economic divestment that's connected to other things such as um, uh, redistricting and and redlining and so on and so forth and so the cool thing about it as you said Justin is we'll be able to go in put those stories on the map and uh, people will be able to hear those stories we'll also be attaching it to some of the bad actors around fracking to also build a conversation for renewable energy Um, but I'm excited because we're going to tell this story and advance it in such a way uh, that it'll connect the story and hopefully break the urban and the rural divide as well as create economic mobility and sustainability uh, for those who have who have uh, been divested from as well as who continue to carry or continue to be overburdened by climate and, and environmental impacts.
0: You know, I just wanted to say that um, I, I'm so honored to be on the panel with you. Um, I, our project is, has has addressed some of those similar barriers we were able to um, to uh, receive a small grant that allowed us to do um, energy audits for the residents in the homes and then what happens a lot our our community is very mixed use in culture and and economics and what we found out is that um, a, a lot of people, did not qualify for energy audits because of the income guidelines that's required to receive them for free. So what's unique about our project is that it is all-inclusive culturally and economically. Many times working class class people don't qualify for a lot of the program. This model that we're using with the BC is all-inclusive culturally, economically, and geographically, because the way that the solar project, um, the solar farm, you don't have to um, have this. You don't have to be close to the solar farm to take advantage of its benefits. And we're able to generate wealth, which will make it sustainable um, in the in the sense of job creations, such as job as for uh, the landscaping part, engineers, engineers such as John. Um, Project managers is these components for the job development. They're all inclusive within our model and our strategy that we're going to use um, for the um, block club solar garden project. We are already partnering with our neighbor in ward. We live in ward seven. We we are partnering with our neighbors in ward five. Um, it is so important that you create avenues or pathways for everyone. Um, yes, we have, uh, we, a lot of us live in the, uh, poverty guidelines. You have a lot of working class people. You have a lot of working poor people, and then you all have also have people that are, uh, families that fall within those demographics of, um, um, uh, middle-class and, um, the reason John Syriat's work is important because it, it's, we hope to become one of your stories, but we also need the data. Everything now is driven by data, data, data. That's all you hear is data. So we wanna show this as an evidence-based practice model um, that it can go in and change not only the um, look of a community, but it can also, enhance the people in the community and everyone has an opportunity to participate um, in this type of model with the solar garden that we're um, we're implementing
1: wonderful wonderful well uh, believe it or not we are at uh, past 12 30 which means we're at the midpoint of our forum and i want to get to questions Um, if you have any questions feel free to text them to 330-541-5794 Again, three three zero five four one five seven nine four. You can also tweet at the City Club and we'll try to work them in. Um, We do have a couple of questions that have already come in. So um, one is about a specific project in Cleveland. Someone's curious to know uh, what the panelists think of the Opportunity Corridor Asphalt Plant proposal. Now, I don't know a ton about it myself, but there's been a large proposal to build an, an asphalt plant along the Opportunity Corridor, which is a new boulevard that will connect um, I-490 to University Circle on Cleveland's east side. Anyone on the panel been following that proposal or the Opportunity Corridor in general and wanna to speak to it?
0: I'm familiar with Opportunity Corridor because our project falls within those um, those geographic lines, um, we know that anything when it can relates to um, infrastructure, it is always a, a benefit um, to its surrounding communities. Most of the time, um, we would just like to see from a community perspective, how some of those dollars come back, and how they are infused into the community for progress and development, that the um, community control that dollars,
1: control those dollars. Anyone else wanna play in on that that project? Okay, Um, so we have also a couple of questions on transit. Transportation is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions. In the last 15 years, RTA fares have doubled while service has been cut 30%. What is being done to promote transit? What does this say about the region's commitment to climate change. Has anyone been looking into transit at either the local or the state level? Uh, Bishop Marcia is based in Dayton. Um, So maybe, um, Bishop, you might be familiar with some um, initiatives outside of Cleveland, but anyone want, want to weigh in on transit and the opportunity for transit to create greater climate equity?
2: I do know that, um, and I just moved to date not too long ago, so I'm not that familiar with everything that that goes on. Um, but I do know that inside of Reimagine Appalachia and Policy Matters Ohio, they have been doing a lot of work around transit, um, and and currently is looking to build a transit committee to address the issues that this question just raised. Uh, I do know that this is just the beginning of it. I also know that. Um, Amanda, Amanda Woodrum with Policy Matters Ohio, she has been working on transit for uh, the last several years. And, and just like you said, um, the person uh, indicated you know, that um, the dollars, they they could continue to reduce the dollars and in, in the investment, uh, but yet continue to uh, emit the gases. And so there's been a push, it's been a difficult push for that very reason because on the local or the county levels, they will say that they don't have the money. Um, they will say that they don't have the money to invest into the infrastructure to improve things. And so as such, um, it's, it's been a long battle that, you know, we're still pushing and fighting against. But it, I definitely would encourage you to look at PolicyMattersOhio.org, um, and they would have some information there. And also, uh, if you would like to be connected to Amanda Woodrum uh, with the Reimagine Appalachia, project um, around you know further getting further information on transit and what they're moving because I'm not a part of that committee uh, I definitely can pass that information on as well
1: anyone else want to weigh in on transit you know while we're talking about funding I also you know mentioned at the top of the hour that you know we're sitting here kind of Waiting for uh, Biden's new uh, infrastructure uh, plan to potentially pass. Um, that plan is really sweeping. There's money in it for everything from transit to boosting the electric car industry to renovating houses. This is a question to all the panelists. You know, if the plan passes, what do you think? Um, what do you think we'll see? How will it affect your
0: work? I think this will provide the opportunity for change um, and even evening, making the playing field even. Um, if we are able to um, once the Biden's um, administration proposal is passed, um, I think we should stand behind it as a people, but we also have to be held accountable for these funds when they come when they come to the community as well. So many times, you know, I don't know how many, I don't want to date my age. There have been, there's been a lot of money when it came down to model cities, empowerment zone, uh, now it's Opportunity Corridor. um, Where we would like to be able to see as a people, um, these dollars come straight to the community where the people have, Control over um, how they address their um, social ills and build them build themselves up as a people economically, socially, and um, culturally, and health wise.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would echo um, some of the things that was just stated, but I also think that we should not get so comfortable. And, and thinking that the um, Biden's jobs plan is, is going to uh, meet everything because I think inside of that there will still be some fights because there are dollars that are being allocated to fossil fuels. I think it's about three billion dollars that's being allocated to fossil fuels. There are certain things that Biden will not come out and just speak against or speak about um, I do believe that you know um, if we look at it from a holistic perspective, it, it will bring resources into the communities. I do believe wholeheartedly that we have to ensure that those commu- that the community has a voice um, and where those dollars go. Um, but I also think we have to ask ourselves, and a lot of times we don't think about it: is um, are we going to be competing or? Uh, one service against another, you know. At, so I always ask people at the risk of what, you know. Um, and even when we look at it, I don't want to just look at things from like climate and environment because if we're going, if we're talking about climate and environment, and we're talking about fossil fuels, and we're talking about pollution, we're also talking about our health. Um, as Ms. Murdoch just said, we're talking about our health. uh, And when we're talking about our health or we're talking about economics, then we also have to be talking about healthcare. We also have to be talking about taxes and revenue so for my work, I think it also begins to advance a deeper conversation. We also need to be talking about prescription drugs. We need to be talking about the whole person, the whole self inside of this, and and not just allowing things to be fragmented in such a way that that we're looking at it, uh, you know, it, just just from from one lens in in a sense, and and. So for me, it's like, yeah, this will help to push to make sure the proposed changes under the ACA become permanent for those who have pre-existing conditions and you know who would be able to have access to healthcare. But it also allows us to make the argument under uh, you know the Jobs Plan to lower prescription drugs now uh, because of the fact that prescription drugs, people who are who have been um, subjected to the impact or the social determinants that have impacted their health. You know, they're paying out out the wazoo, you know, for um, health, you know, for prescriptions. And so I think for us, let me speak for me. For me, the jobs plan elongates the conversation because I feel like we're not just in one 50 fights, we're in one fight with 50 rounds. and, And we have to connect this whole ecosystem together, but also being mindful that some of these things that comes in that jobs plan also has certain limitations uh, and will impact our work. And, and we still have some work to do. Um, because again, you can't say I'm for climate change um, and I wanna invest all of these dollars, but I'm still for putting, you know, $3 billion, I, I think it's 3 billion, I have to look again, but it I know, you know, into fossil fuels. So it's like, you know, how do we deal with that double-edged sword?
1: John, let me bring you back in here too. Um, you know, are you expecting a huge boom in business with this um, new Biden infrastructure plan? And, and could this be kind of a watershed moment in terms of, you know, bringing some of the folks that haven't been at the table or haven't been able to benefit from opportunities around ed- energy efficiency into the picture?
3: Yeah, I think I'm hoping it's a it's a watershed moment. I like watershed moments, um, and I, I think the industry is at a point where um, like some nudges can put it in a in a good direction. Um, from my perspective, running the business, um, no, I guess I'm not planning on some influx of <laughs> funds. Um, you know, we'll see what happens. I. I I honestly don't have time to to follow. I don't have an ability to uh, to nudge national policy. Um, Pretty focused on the state level, which for our company and I think our customers, our our state's energy policy has been um, kind of a focused area. Um, I but I can say you know what we look for um, is you know I steer by I steer the ship by the current, so to speak, not the wave. Um, So one-time spending. for us, one-time spending um, projects don't, uh, don't change things a lot. Um, you kind of have to manage around them. I, I, I think we're looking at an energy ecosystem that is totally changing. Um, and so we're looking at like, what are things gonna be like over the next 10, 20, 30 years? Um, and that's how we make decisions on how to staff, who to serve, um, so I think to the extent that that there's a, a federal bill that creates funding for projects and it, it pushes on those key points where the industry's going, then I think it'll be m- money well spent. Um, it can bring new people um, to the table. Um, I think past experience has been though that um, oftentimes that doesn't happen. So I, I do have some skepticism on um, the effectiveness of that. and. You know, I guess that's our experience um, uh, from spending bills past. Uh, often, the money doesn't go to the a project that saves energy or doesn't bring people to the table. Um, that doesn't mean it can't happen now, but I think that's where people's minds should be: um, is, the, is that funding being spent effectively?
0: You know, and I have to I have to really agree with John. Um, you know, unless we take a, 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 a panoramic view or a drone's view of um, this opportunity. You know, it's like um, before the passing of the Civil Rights Act, so that people would have the opportunity for some, uh, for uh, opportunity for fairness, even after the passing of the Civil Rights Acts. But we have to change the laws. Like John said, the policies that are in, that are, that are in place now don't make the, pl- the playing field even and give projects such as um, like single time projects a chance for growth. Because I'm sure all the big companies at the table started off with one project. We need to be able to give our grassroots organization that opportunity as well. But yet we can't look for government dollars to save us. If we don't find a way to work together and to come together collectively as a people with culture and economic diversity, we'll be left out again. So we have to galvanize ourselves to make change in the policies that are in place so that we can have an opportunity to grow and sustain ourselves as a people.
1: I think that's a great transition into another question that we've got from the audience, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. But you know, the title of this forum is "Global Problem, Local Solutions," and the uh, audience member is writing in with the question: You know, how how do how does a global problem get addressed with local solutions? Essentially, um, you know, we have goals such as reducing greenhouse gas. Affluence by fifty percent by twenty thirty, um, and to achieve carbon neutrality by twenty fifty. So, how do you, how do we address those really big global goals and that big global problem? How are these how are local projects helping to address that? Maybe I'll start with uh, Bishop Marcia.
2: Um, so I, I think it's it's. Well, I, for us, I can say from the local standpoint is we have, I have been participating in conversations with um, CAN International uh, to see how we can address the domestic and global issues. Uh, One of the things that we do know is um, collectively looking at carbon emissions, um, looking at the the top 1% who continues to be the largest carbon emitters, but also uh, be the ones to get the largest gain as far as wealth is concerned, and then create and perpetuate poverty. And what we have been doing is looking at the different ways that we can bring that conversation uh, together as a whole and come together and and identify solutions and ways that we can work together. So currently right now, especially since um, Biden has a put the U.S. back inside of the Paris Agreement, we have been having um, various meetings over the past couple of months to really identify solutions and ways that we can work together to address the domestic and the global problems. And, you know, I'll be honest, right now it's still kind of um, a little bit of tension around it uh, simply because um, there are certain things that we see or that we want here in the U.S. that, you know, the... Uh, International groups are like, you know, we needed to be a little different, uh, but at least we're in the dialogue. And that's how we started, you know, to um, look at some of the ways that we can engage with one another to build this voice that addresses the, the um, domestic and global problems.
1: I think what I'm hearing too from folks on the panel is that if if we simply allow those big global goals to kind of guide things and for money to flow in the traditional ways, then the same players will be at the table who are always at the table. And I, I think part of what I'm hearing from the panel is that local solutions help to disrupt that a little bit. Is that is that fair, Cindy? I feel like you're you're especially in that space. <laughs>
0: Well, you're singing my song. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, but I I feel like there's an opportunity for us to grow, you know, so um, to come together collectively and work and solve problems and be um, to participate in international laws and creating international forums, uh, addressing the same type of issues that plague us here, or they, they plague other people around the world. That's why this this model, this is a business model. It's not a program model. The model that we have with the the Community Solar Grant, it's a business model that can be implemented anywhere. And then with the growth of it, uh, we could also hopefully, as we grow, fund other projects that may not meet your regular uh, lending uh, uh, criteria. So, uh, but like I said, we need the data to support what we're doing and we need the data to support and show our, uh, our outcomes. And like it, uh, like Bishop uh, Marcia stated, Bishop Dinkins um, stated, this, our health disparities are not just limited to the United States or even to Huff, my community. These are global issues that if we're able to come together, work together, and see our needs and not um and see where there are opportunities for us to work together instead of competing against each other with all that's going on with racial injustice in addition to what's going on with the african-americans and uh the police injustice right now and 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 i don't get me wrong i love the police i have a lot of family members that are police officers but what's going on and this is these are global issues and if we don't if we're not able to assimilate ourselves together to change the laws on a local level on a state level national level and even on a global international level we are lost so we this is a grand opportunity for us to work together. And it's hard work, I have to tell you, very, very hard work, long hours. <laughs> it's <just such> a- <laughs>
1: yes, uh, I was talking about that with Bishop Marcia a little bit on the phone as well. The part-time job that's actually a full-time job. Correct. Right? <laughs> um, right. So um, we just have about four minutes left and I'd love to just close by asking everyone on the panel to maybe give some uh, advice for folks who are listening You know, what are some ways they can get involved? You know, the the whole idea again of this talk is global problem, local solutions. Are there ways that listeners can get involved in your work um, to help with the problem of climate justice?
2: Yeah. um, I think for us, um, one way is You know our stories are important and the stories is is what brings us in so if people have stories that they want to share and speak to the lived experiences uh, within their community because it's like um, Ms. Mumford said we need the data not just the quantitative but the qualitative data um, this mixed methodology Um, And so for us, it is, um, you know, definitely we're looking for people to train as trainers in the Black Church Green Movement. We're looking for people to be a part of the um, Black Appalachian Coalition the Black Appalachian Coalition table to bring voices to the table. So we are having collective wisdom, uh, bringing that collective wisdom together to build out a policy agenda to dismantle a lot of these uh, degenerative policies. Um, But we're also just looking for people who just wanna, you know, just just go out in the community and and talk about it, you know, um, and to educate. We have to, you know, get this, you know, you can come and come to the trainings and get the skills. And then we just ask, we always say, just rinse and repeat it. Tell the story and help equip others um, as we equip you. And those are ways that you can, you know, be involved with uh, with our organization, uh, volunteerism, internships, research. We need it all. <laughs> we'll take it all.
1: All right, there you yeah. go. Cindy, how about you? Any ways that folks can get involved in the solar garden,
0: for example? Sure. Uh, You can reach out to me at um, Cindy Mumford. I had to put it in the chat. I hope they put it in the chat. Cindy Mumford at the bcward7.org. Or you can get into contact, uh, look that for us on the website. We need bodies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we need bodies and never underestimate the power of one and never underestimate yourself. So if you want to get involved, you know, just reach out to us. Uh, you can reach out to me. My telephone number you can put in the chat is um, 216-496-2300. Um, we love to talk and share our stories, but we also need people to help.
1: So. Yeah. I, 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 great. And and if I can put in a plug, I believe you have an IOB uh, page yeah. as well. Is that still active? So um,
0: it, it's not. but we can put not. it up again. Is that <laughs> <Okay>. active? <laughs> okay. Scratch that. Okay. <laughs>
1: okay. Uh, John, any last thoughts from you? Are you um, are you looking to hire? Are you going to be, uh, is business booming um, around energy efficiency <laughs> right now? I know you've grown a lot since 2006. Yeah. Uh,
3: we we do have a, some job postings up, and we're always looking for interns. Um, so yeah, if anyone is uh, technical out there and, and looking to work for a company like ours or has some experience, um, for sure get in touch, uh, and we'll we'll keep hiring. Uh, so there's now, but later too. Um, my thought on like what what you can do, you know, not knowing who's all listening in, but um, I think inquiry works really well. Um, I I don't think. Uh, anyone needs to have all the answers right now. Um, I don't think any one person has all the answers, uh, but I do think where we see a lot of change get sparked is when someone asks a question, right? So it could be with your employer, like, do we manage? How do we manage our energy use um, or reducing our energy use or carbon footprint? Um, they'll think about it. Um, you could ask your council person, um, right? They're probably looking for that sort of interest and in inquiry. Um, it could be your house of worship. It could be your neighbor, you know, just bringing these things up and saying like, well, what are you doing? Um, and sharing thoughts, you know, it's, um, it's a, it's a, a low bar, low time way of getting a dialogue started that doesn't get contentious. And, um, from our end, that is what, that's where we see our clients start to make changes and start to invest in energy is when they get, they get a friendly question from their employers or their shareholders or their customers or someone in their community.
1: Um, right. So, yeah. So talk talk to your neighbor, talk to your coworker. I love it. All right. Well, we're unfortunately we're out of time. So thank you all for joining us for today's forum on the intersection of climate change, utilities, energy, and justice. We've been talking with Bishop Marcia Dinkins, who's the executive director of Ohioans for Sustainable Change. Cindy Mumford, who's the president of the Block Club and Huff, and John Sariak, who's the founder and CEO of Go Sustainable Energy. Today's forum is a part of our A Climate Changed series, sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation and the George Gunn Foundation. Our community partners are the Ohio Climate Justice Fund and Power A Clean Future Ohio. We appreciate their support in planning today's forum. I wanted to mention, too, that Power A Clean Future Ohio is hosting our virtual summit, May 17th to the 20th, so just in a couple days, featuring similar topics. It's called the Ohio Clean Energy Summit, Local Communities Lead. So if you loved this talk today, go over and register for free at poweracleanfuture.org. All of the City Club's virtual forums are presented for free every week, thanks to generous support from the Bank of America, Key Bank, Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC. You can join them in supporting City Club's mission by making a contribution online or becoming a member at cityclub.org. I'm Justin Glanville. Thank you so much for joining us today. And our forum is now adjourned. And I have to rewind the gong. Okay, there we go, gong. (laughs) Thank you, everyone.